Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. We decided to do this show partly because I've been reading some of the coverage uh, done by one of our guests here, Eric Schmidt, about the way in which there is, as there would be, a kind of war of ideas going on between the West and, and, and some of the elements that comprise ISIS. And, you know, when we talk here in America about the whole idea of defeating an idea, we usually do it the other way around, right? We talk about an idea as something that can't be defeated. Medgar Evers stated, you can kill a man, but you can't kill an idea. He, of course, was later shot dead by a Klansman, but he was right. The civil rights movement kept going. JFK said, a man may die, nations may rise and fall, but an idea lives on. Ideas have endurance without death. Well, when you get into the game that we're playing right now, right now, the the goal changes, right? The goal changes. The, the goal really is to prevail over an idea if possible. And one of the people who's been covering this is Eric Schmidt. Uh, he's a senior writer who covers terrorism and national security issues for The New York Times. He's the co-author of Counter-Strike, the untold story of America's campaign against al-Qaeda. We're going to start with him in just a second. We're going to add to uh, D- Dr. David Pollack. I'll tell you more about that as he comes aboard. So Eric Schmidt, uh, you've been writing a lot about this, and, and maybe we could just begin with the question, does it seem to you as a reporter that the United States has an agreed-upon policy for, for how to communicate about this, how, in fact, to try to have its own ideas prevail over the ideas that otherwise radicalize uh, people and, and cause them, uh, or at least uh, enable them, to, to join Islamic extremist movements? In short, no. I think this has been one of the great weaknesses of the American government's response to whether you call it the war on terror, going back to 9-11, or whether it's today and try and deal with, uh, with Boko Haram on, on social media, and that while the United States military and intelligence agencies and counterterrorism analysts have gotten quite good at identifying and locating and capturing or killing enemies, uh, particularly terrorists, they have not been particularly effective in dealing with the ideology, the propaganda that's uh, promulgated by many of these groups. And I think they've struggled with this, since they've struggled in the content of how they deal with this. They've struggled with what agency of the government is responsible for this, You know, ultimately deciding it's not really the responsibility of the Pentagon or the CIA, at least in the public sector. They've left it to the State Department, uh, which is quite under-resourced as they try and do this, and basically left it to the State Department and some analysts there to try and counter this just huge and ever-growing barrage of information and real propaganda that's out there in social media in multiple languages right now. And so I think it's something uh, that the U.S. has struggled with and will continue to struggle with, particularly as it tries to counter the message of groups like al-Qaeda and now Boko Haram as they appeal to uh, particularly young men, increasingly young women in the Islamic world, who really don't put much credibility in what any government, much less a Western government like the United States, would have to say. There are so many ways ways in which we might have a disadvantage. Is it part of it that it just isn't in our DNA? In other words, we have this notion here 
constitutionally that that ideas should be should be expressed freely. And then the, there's a sort of Oliver Wendell Holmesian notion that there's a, a, um, an invisible hand of the market in these ideas that the good ideas will somehow or other prevail. If everybody's left on a level playing field, the good ideas will win out over the bad ideas. If that's our overall attitude domestically, it's kind of hard for me to see how we'd ever be any good at manipulating and calculating public opinion someplace else. Well, exactly. And it's not just that. It's also that we're, if you will, hampered by the sense that there needs to be truthfulness in the messages. If you're going to be publicly identified as the United States government spokesman or a website, the decision has been made. You can't lie, overtly lie, in your propaganda, if you will. Now, the CIA has black programs where they can do this, and there's disinformation that's spread in various means through computer spoofing and other things that they and the military do. But in terms of a public messaging campaign, they are at a huge disadvantage in, in both in speed and in content, again, the truthfulness of it, and in, as you said, the marketing of ideas. They're just, uh, it's a really tough place to be in if you're a, you know, the U.S. government in this place. I think that's why when you hear the government talking about this, as you did with the president most recently here in Washington with this countering violent extremism conference, talking about how to rely on partners, not necessarily government partners in the, in, the, in the Muslim world, although that's one step closer, I think, but others who may have credibility with these audiences that the U.S. is trying to reach, whether it's imams, whether it is social uh, activist groups, whether it's individual youth, and it's hard. But it's somebody who's going to have credibility with a message that the U.S. supports, maybe not publicly, but at least supports in principle. It seems another part of the disadvantage, at one point in one of your articles, I think you talked about 90,000 tweets a day going out from ISIS and ISIS-related groups on the Internet. A few years ago, we were kind of talking about open-source terrorism, this kind of notion that terrorists don't really have to attend a formal cell meeting. They don't have to be in face-to-face contact even with one another, that through social media, through the dark web, through whatever, people could kind of figure out how to be terrorists and then do whatever they want to do kind of independently. Well, now you have the propaganda version of this, right? I mean, the 90,000 tweets. I assume are not the result of some boiler room, you know, where ISIS clerks are, are pounding this stuff out. It's done in an, I assume, on a largely open source basis where they have partners that they don't even know about, people who are just kind of willingly joining in on their own. Yeah, they're called fanboys, among others. I mean, there's people just will tweet and retweet what's what's out there, and it, the volume is such that there nobody in the U.S. government or any probably Western governments combined can effectively counter each one of these. So again, the volume is, as much as the content, is what's often overwhelming for, in this case, the Obama administration, but also its partners in, in Europe and in the Middle East. We should say that you're just back from Chad, where you've been covering Boko Haram. So we talk about partners. I mean, uh, the partnership that nobody wanted, at least on, on this side of the debate, Boko Haram and, and ISIS. Maybe partnership is the wrong word, but, but certainly uh, an allegiance has been formed. To what degree, to your eyes, is that kind of thing the product of this kind of communication? I mean, I wouldn't imagine that ISIS and Boko Haram are in a position to go meet in Geneva and, and hammer out some kind of working agreement. No, these are two groups that probably never would have linked up before, but with the advent of social media, they are now very much linked in the global jihadi world. And there's a, right now there's a competition of ideas, primarily between ISIS and al-Qaeda, and each side is trying to rally individuals, groups, if you will, to their side to see who is the preeminent voice in, the, uh, in this world, in this space. And right now, I think what you're seeing is an opportunistic move by Shikau, the leader of Boko Haram, 
drafting off the notoriety of ISIS and basically saying, I'm part of this movement. I'm willing to at least pledge allegiance to say I agree with what, uh, what is going on with ISIS in Syria and Iraq. And, and in return, he's hoping to get some kind of response from ISIS and from its leader, Baghdadi, that basically said, yeah, everything that Boko Haram is doing is consistent with what our, ide- what our ideals are. It's unclear whether this will end up in any material support for Boko Haram, any money or foreign fighters. Or, but even if it doesn't, it's elevating Boko Haram outside of its so far regional focus of northeastern Nigeria, beyond even West Africa, and put it on a kind of a more of a global stage with all these other players now by, by doing so. Uh, we're talking to Eric Schmidt. He is a senior writer, covers uh, terrorism and national security issues for the New York Times. And a little bit later in the show, you're going to hear Kazem Rashid. Uh, he's going to give us a Muslim perspective on, on how this conversation or this battle of ideas is going. But we also want to add right now to the conversation Dr. David Pollack, Kaufman Fellow at the Washington Institute, focusing on regional political dynamics in the Middle East. He's also the editor of, editor of something called the Fikra Forum, I hope I'm saying that right, an online yep. community, which generates ideas to support Arab Democrats in their struggle against extremist ideologies. You're listening to Eric Schmidt talking about the difficulty of organs of the state trying yeah. to craft a message that will be palatable, that will be that will be powerful, that will be passed along. You're trying to do something else, which is to create a more organic counterpart to what we've been talking about so far. How's that going? First of all, maybe you should say what the Fikra Forum is. It's a bilingual blog in Arabic and English. Fikra, F-I-K-R-A, is the Arabic word for idea. And it's something that I started here at the Washington Institute about two years ago. And what it does is give a virtual platform for people in the Middle East, mostly Arabs, mostly Muslims, to exchange ideas about how to counter extremism and how to reform their own societies and how to get together with each other and with like-minded people in the United States and elsewhere in the world in order to promote better ideas. Our idea is that better ideas will drive worse ideas down. And what we have been able to do is, in the last two years or so, is to create a virtual community of people in the region writing either in Arabic or in English, and we will translate from one to the other instantaneously almost, and put these messages up online. A virtual community of people who are analyzing the very, very real acute challenges that they face from extremists like ISIS and others, and talk about how those people can be not just confronted militarily, but also confronted on the ideological level and on the emotional level and on the level of just the human level, people's needs and aspirations and feelings. And I think we've been able to get a very surprising collection of smart, passionate, mostly young people all over the region, even in war-torn countries like Syria or Libya or Yemen, writing for us and exchanging their ideas with each other and with their American counterparts. And in fact, I have to say, I guess this is a measure of success, I have a harder time getting American contributors these days to write for Fikra Forum than I do with all of the Arabs and others in the region, Kurds and Turks and so on, who are knocking on our doors and trying to get their messages out. 
hang on for a second, Dr. Pollock. I want to ask Eric Schmidt a question. So one of the problems that we have here, one of the difficulties of this whole conversation is that there are so many different possible audiences for any given message. And I guess what I'm wondering, based on your reporting and based on your understanding of this situation, in terms of, uh, of the desired target of the kind of work that the State Department is attempting to do or that anybody is attempting to do to counter the tactics of ISIS and, and ISIS um, allies, who's the target audience? I mean, who, who is it important to reach with this message? I think there are several audiences, and the State Department has, has been trying to reach them in different ways. I think, first of all, you have the primary audience, that is the, the group that the extremists are trying to reach, 18 to 32, 31-year-old males, increasingly females now, for whatever reason, who are disaffected, who are adventure seekers, who are looking for some kind of violent fighting to be involved with. I mean, that's uh, certainly with the ISIS videos and the beheadings, the more graphic videos you've seen. This is actually, a, in, in some ways, a recruiting tool for who they're seeking to do. When you look at the huge volume of tweets that we talked about before, there's been a decision by at least the American government. You can't just let these tweets go unanswered. So you have this small cell of analysts inside the Pentagon who spend their whole day, they call them digital engagement teams, who are basically online in the trenches and chat rooms and other places, digitally kind of responding to these and, and basically under trying to combat them, refute the allegations that are there, and maybe even uh, talk about some of the atrocities that you name the group, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, have committed, and trying to undercut their authority. So on the one hand, you're trying to prevent these groups from attracting additional members. Uh, you're also trying to demonstrate to you know, the world community that, at least in this case, the United States government isn't just going to let these messages go unanswered, that there, there is a response. And how effective that response may be is, 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 is in question. But you have, you know, if you want to have allies across the Arab world as well as Europe that's increasingly facing these problems, join you in a common effort. You have to show that you're at least willing to lead and dedicate some resources to this. So, um, Dr. David Pollack, as you listen to uh, Eric Schmidt describe that group, and then I think about your group at FICRA Forum, it seems to me that these are, in a Venn diagram, these are two circles that essentially don't overlap, that maybe some of the people in your group have cousins or brothers or something like that who, who maybe are potentially in the group that Eric described. But I feel as though we're talking about two different choirs sitting in two very different lofts. Yes, I think that's actually probably right. I, I think the main difference really is that the people in the region who are writing for FIC reform are in the region, and they are not U.S. citizens, let alone U.S. government officials. They're Arabs or Turks or Kurds or others who are sitting in Damascus or Tripoli or Baghdad or Erbil and actually expressing their own considered personal point of view. So these are commentators but they're also actors in the drama that's going on in this really fateful struggle between moderation and extremism all around the Muslim world. So I think that with all due respect to the U.S. government efforts, we are hampered as a government by the fact that we are here, by the fact that we are mostly not Muslims, by the fact that we are a government by the fact that we are the United States, which has credibility problems in much of the region, and by the fact that we shy away from combining religion and politics. We believe 
in the separation of church and state. So all of those things make the kind of forum that I'm trying to run here at the Washington Institute and others like it, I think, make them in many quarters more credible and more effective. We don't have the resources of the U.S. government, and our audience is modest, to be perfectly frank about it, so far, but it's growing. So that in the five years or so that I've run, for example, the Washington Institute's main website in Arabic translation, and all that is is just a translation into Arabic of the material that we put out in English, analyzing what's going on in the Middle East, we now have as many readers in Arabic as we do in English. And that means over a million page views per year. I think that's really a pretty uh, gratifying statistic. And I hope that FICRA Forum, which allows people in the region to actually express their voices directly in their own language, to their own people, to other people in other Arab or Muslim countries, and to Americans. I hope that that audience will grow more or less to that level pretty soon. We're going to grab a quick break here. We're going to come back with more of Eric Schmidt and Dr. David Pollack after this. So we're having a conversation today about that question of how do you how do you win a battle of ideas? How do you prevail? You can't kill an idea, but you can maybe prevail or, or do better. But where does that playing field exist and how does one achieve superiority? Joining us today, Eric Schmidt. He's a senior writer who covers terrorism and national security issues for The New York Times. He's the co-author of Counter-Strike, the untold story of America's campaign against al-Qaeda. Also with us, Dr. David Pollack, the Kaufman Fellow at the Washington Institute. He focuses on regional dynamics in the Middle East. He's also the editor of the Fikra Forum, an online community in which uh, people from the Arab community discuss more democratic ideas and their struggle against extremist ideologies. One of the things we haven't really exactly talked about so far, uh, and Eric Schmidt, I'll, talk, I'll start with you, is content. So we talked about sort of structure, effort, energy, volume, but we haven't really sort of said content. So in terms of the messaging that's going out from ISIS or anybody sympathetic to ISIS, I mean, I'm sure there isn't exa- one ex- universal message among those 90,000 tweets, but in general, what is the message? Well, if you boil it down, certainly this is al-Qaeda's message, and to some extent a variation is, is what you're seeing from ISIS, and that is that the West and the United States in particular is at war with Islam. And therefore, it is the duty of Muslims around the world to rally behind organizations like al-Qaeda or like ISIS to combat this, whether it's in the form of 
troops, as uh, certainly the U.S. has had over the years in Iraq or in Afghanistan, or whether it was uh, the symbol of, of the United States oppression as they saw it, whether it was the, the black sites the CIA had or the, the interrogations of the facilities at Guantanamo Bay. These have been symbols of this that have resonated down through the years. But more often, you know, more recently, what you've seen of ISIS, in, for instance, is just be, it's, it's a message of wanting to be part of something that only al-Qaeda only hinted at, and that was this larger caliphate. Mm-hmm. Come and be a part of this, essentially a revolutionary movement, if you will. We've created the space. You know, al-Qaeda up to now has only talked about this. We have actually, that is, ISIS, have created this space in Iraq and in Syria, and they've broadened the appeal, not just to the militant fighters, but they are now trying to attract professionals who would come in, doctors, lawyers, engineers who would come and basically populate this, as well as families. I mean, appealing to fighters, yes, but bring your spouses, bring your children, almost in like a homesteader type appeal, and there will be a place for you there. So there's a, in all the grimness that ISIS represents, uh, there is this a little bit more of a positive incentive, at least they're holding out, than certainly al-Qaeda, completely nihilistic in its view, has, has offered. That's, I think, what we're kind of seeing now, but it's, it's a message that evolves and is tailored to various audiences, different regions, uh, and it's a, it's a very a very slickly produced. We've certainly seen with ISIS in their videos. It's very quite captivating, I think, for a generation that's growing up on on video consumption and that kind of messaging to to have this group speak to them in that way. Dr. David Pollack, that's a pretty potent message. The notion of this restoration uh, of this, you know, I mean, what fourteen hundred year old idea, this flowering, uh, this uh, domin- dominance intellectually, culturally, and militarily that the old caliphate had. Is there a message that the democratic West can muster up that's an effective counter? I mean, do we have anything to say against something like that? Yes, I think we absolutely do. But even more important, I think Muslims have a lot to say to counter it. And Arabs have a lot to say in particular to counter it. And that starts with, for example, the burning alive of that poor Jordanian pilot at the hands of ISIS uh, in Syria a few weeks ago, which is something that if ISIS thought that this was going to be a great recruiting tool or a good propaganda vehicle to attract more sympathy and support, I think it backfired very badly against them, not just in Jordan, but all across most Arab countries. And I think it's very important for us to realize that despite the sensationalism about and on behalf of ISIS, the fact is that their support in Arab or other predominantly Muslim societies is very low. And the reason I know that is that on behalf of Fikra Forum and the Washington Institute, I conducted using Arab pollsters, public opinion polls that I think are highly credible in six Arab countries a few months ago. And I discovered that At that time, and I don't think this has changed for the better, I think it's probably changed for the worse from ISIS's standpoint. At that time, popular sympathy for ISIS was in the single digits, at best, in any one of those six Arab countries, Jordan, Lebanon, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and the United Arab Emirates. So I think we need to take a step back 
and not feel overwhelmed, not feel defeated, not feel despair at the fact that, yes, their propaganda does attract thousands, yes, of fanatical, youthful, mostly supporters, but many, many millions, hundreds of millions, actually, of other Arabs and other Muslims are not attracted. They're repelled by that propaganda. Uh, this is uh, something that's also, I think, uh, going to be said by Kazem Rashid later in the show today. Although, uh, Eric Schmidt, on the other hand, it must be daunting and troubling to the West, to the United States, to the State Department, that, I mean, I think we all understand that in the region itself, there are a lot of people without very many options in uh, in a country like Iraq, where a lot of the infrastructure is really broken anyway, and where, in fact, whatever limited balance of power existed between Sunni and Shiite uh, factions pre-2003 has been really, really disrupted and allowed a lot of, as you say, space in which this kind of thing can go on. But even limited success in recruiting from America or northern England, or and the idea that these ideas would have any traction at all for somebody living in a Western democracy, that's going to be pretty daunting for the State Department. Sure, and I think this is why they're concerned about it, and it's a concern that you have the administration feel strongly enough they're having a three-day summit on combating violent extremism because they worry about the threat of foreign fighters returning home here to the United States or to European countries uh, armed with the skills they've learned in the battlefields of Syria or Iraq and, and carrying out those kind of attacks, or just being motivated, uh, such as one of the uh, Charlie Hebdo bombers was, to carry out attacks even if they haven't been to the region. So it's a combination of the real concern of foreign fighters who've gone and traveled to these areas coming back, or even those who haven't but are being radicalized online from what they read and from what they see, as we see reported almost daily now, it seems at least weekly, whether it's in Australia, the United States, Canada, somebody being, young person being arrested, uh, being detained for suspicion of either trying to travel to the Middle East and fight with ISIS or at least uh, providing some kind of material support to them. David Bollock, I, I wonder if part of the message, and this also will come up, I think, in our conversation with Kazim, but whether part of our message has to be a little bit more of a mixed message about our own behavior. In other words, the image of the Jordanian pilot, as you say, is a very powerful one, but there are, are powerful and not inaccurate images circulated about us, right? Images of Guantanamo, forced interrogations, Abu Ghraib images, images, things that we've done, and, and even prior to U.S. involvement, even just the notion of, of countries in the Middle East whose borders have been drawn by people other than Middle Easterners. I wonder if there's some way in which we have to, if not apologize for that, at least acknowledge that our involvement in the Middle East hasn't always resulted in the most benign or, des benign or desirable outcomes. You know, it's a really good question. I have to say, on thinking out loud here a little bit, that that was an Al-Qaeda message par excellence, what you just said. It strikes me not very much an ISIS message. They are not focused on what the United States or other Western powers have or haven't done to them or in the Middle East or in other Muslim parts of the world. They are focused on Islam itself as an extreme version of it, clearly, as an ideology. They're focused on restoration of the caliphate, which had nothing to do with Western powers. Uh, we're talking about something, as you said, that happened 1,400 years ago before there was the United States or even a Western Europe. 
And to be brutally honest about it, they're talking about an internal battle against the Shia, against the sectarian struggle, against Shia Muslims, against other Muslim sects, and against non-Muslims in the lands that they control. So this is, I think, not really closely connected to anything that the United States or others have done in the region, whether it's Abu Ghraib, Guantanamo, or what have you. And that sort of material, it seems to me, is mostly conspicuous by its absence in ISIS propaganda as opposed to previous al-Qaeda propaganda. Now, what they are talking about is the fact that the United States and other partners, including Muslim air forces from Jordan and the UAE and others, are attacking them now, today. So there's a war going on. And in that respect, there is a real, literally, life-or-death struggle that they can point to as something in which they say they're standing up to uh, outside powers and, in fact, to Muslims, whom they view as apostates or traitors to the cause. But I think that on that level, the main message is that nothing succeeds like success and nothing fails like failure. So if ISIS starts losing these military battles, as it is today, then I think that dimension of its propaganda is going to fall very flat very quickly. Eric Schmidt, what about that? I mean, the Times has done some really marvelous reporting uh, recently that's helped a lot of us understand the degree to which, in some ways, we almost seem like military accidental tourists in this region. I mean, we're just sort of constantly, at the moment right now, trying to liberate cities that are, are under ISIS and therefore effectively Sunni control. You know, our closest allies are the Shia government in Iraq and groups coming, uh, military groups coming over from Iran. Some of those involve people we hate so much from previous encounters that we, we almost can't help them, but we kind of need to help them. But but what David Pollack is sort of saying is maybe we don't matter that much, particularly in this war of ideas. At the level that we're talking about right now, ISIS may be thinking, who cares what you say? I mean, this really is an internal struggle within the Arab world. I don't know. Do we, do we matter that much? Does it, is our message really that important? Well, I, th- I think David's right in the sense that the long-term uh, struggle here, and this has been a this has been a theme even when we, the battle was with al-Qaeda, this is an internal issue for, for Muslims uh, around the world to settle. This is not something Western governments or, you know, the American administration can wade in and try and decide. I and mean, we, we, the U.S. government tried that in Iraq, and, and look where it left us. I mean, it, it really it doesn't work. And so I think what you've seen, certainly with the Obama administration, is taking a very careful approach in the use of force. Basically, this, this president has said, you know, I want to be known for ending, winding up the wars in, in Iraq, if possible, and in Afghanistan. Now, he's had to reopen the conflict in, in Iraq, but in a very limited way, fewer than 3,000 American troops on the ground there now, serving strictly as advisors, uh, not in a combat role, as, as has been defined, or certainly not in combat units. And so whether you're in Iraq or whether you're in uh, West Africa, where I was, the whole approach here is that you have a small American military footprint there to help advise and train and equip the indigenous forces, the security forces, the military forces, and try and help them get to the point where they can address these threats so that you, large U.S. and Western forces don't have to come into these regions. Because as we've seen, this is the perfect propaganda 
organizations. They say, ah, look again, here's the, here's the West invading our territory, the infidels coming into our region. So I think what the U.S. is trying to do is be very mindful of that, be mindful they don't step into the briar patch once again with large numbers of forces, but, but assist where they can, whether it's in tactical assistance, surveillance from drones, monetary assistance uh, that we're seeing here, and then very quietly from behind the scenes, if they can, provide support to more credible ideological standard bearers in the region. That's the tricky part, though, and that you're going to probably suffer some short-term hits, at least, as, as certainly uh, we are in the U.S. is in the propaganda field now. But the idea is that these organizations tend to burn themselves out or overplay their hand. They become so violent that they turn off all but the most, you know, the smallest sliver of the segment they're appealing to, and they can't sustain it. And that was the approach for al-Qaeda, and that's the approach here. It's, it's a long-term approach, not talking about years, but probably decades, because as we've seen, these organizations tend to splinter, and it's, just, it's not as easy as just pulling the plug or defeating a conventional force or an enemy. The ideology lives on even after the militants on the field have been, uh, have been captured or killed or dispersed. We're going to have to leave it there. Eric Schmidt, uh, writer for the New York Times, author of Counter-Strike, The Untold Story of America's Campaign Against Al-Qaeda, and Dr. David Pollack, Kaufman Fellow at the Washington Institute. Thank you so much for joining today. When we come back, uh, we'll have a conversation with Kazim Rashid, a specifically Muslim perspective on the battle of ideas. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea and me, Kion Wolf. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin. For articles, show pages, and photos, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, The Nose looks back at the weekend news. Now, back to Colin. We're talking to Kazim Rashid. He is a human and religious rights activist and an advocate of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in America. He's authored several books, including The Wrong Kind of Muslim and Extremist, a response to Geert Wilders and terrorists everywhere. First of all, welcome to the show. And second of all, as we're having this conversation, we're, we're having a conversation about the notion of a war of ideas, a contest of ideas that, that ultimately for extremism, for terrorism uh, to be defeated, a different kind of idea has to prevail over that idea and its underlying uh, substructure. One thing I'm encountering with your work and watching your TED Talk is that maybe we're making a fundamentally flawed assumption that it's a level playing field, that when there's a competition of, of ideas, everybody involved has the freedom to choose idea A over idea B or the other way around. When you talk about oppression of conscience, in a way, I think you're talking about a situation where not everybody feels free just to pick the idea they like best. Colin, thanks for first having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And you're absolutely right. I think one of the biggest issues in humanity today is the fact that people don't have the right to believe or not believe 
uh, without some kind of a literal or proverbial gun hanging over their head. And the assumption that people do often leads to a lot of the fear-mongering, right? I mean, you've heard this before that they, quote-unquote, uh, hate us for our freedom. Well, it's such a nonsense position to take, but to take that position requires believing that people are making rational decisions based on full information. You know, I can tell you in Muslim-majority countries like Pakistan, you know, my birth country, for example, uh, depending on who you talk to, you'll either get some great remarks about the United States or some terrible remarks about the United States. And much of it has to do with the slanted narrative or whatever narrative it is that they've been fed. It's no different than why we have a diversity of thought in the United States. The difference, though, is that here in the United States, you know, we can have this dialogue. You and I can have this conversation, whereas this may not necessarily be the case in countries like Pakistan, like Saudi Arabia. And so we need to be more conscious how we approach these issues uh, on an international scale, because if we go with the assumption that everyone has access to the same information, which they don't, we're going to end up making some grave mistakes. Do you think it's worth it, though? I mean, one of the things we're reading about more and more is this kind of attempt, this massive attempt at strategic messaging, which isn't a new idea. It's been around for as long as there's been the other kind of warfare. Uh, but this idea that, that we really do need to prevail on the front of ideas. And by we, that's an interesting question about what's meant there. But certainly if we agree that ISIS or anything like ISIS is not a desirable entity to have presiding over any region of the globe and that freedom, that democracy, that tolerance uh, are good virtues. Uh, so there's this kind of battle to see whether uh, we can get that message across. Is it a battle that's worth waging? Well, I think anytime you talk about how to find peace, anytime you can avoid war, you're on the right track, right? You can't force peace. But as far as on a broader level, it comes down to something that we can all agree on. And that is the rule of law, whether you're the United States, whether you're Israel, whether you're the United Kingdom, whether you're Ghana or any other country in the world. We all agree to certain laws that we will abide by, uh, you know, international treaties, UN charters, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. These are all laws that we've all signed on to. And part of what some of the injustices you see in the world, part of them stem from a refusal to adhere to our own very basic secular laws and requirements. Uh, when you have the U.S. foreign policy that approves of torture, uh, you're creating a terrible image in the eyes of non-Americans. I don't just mean Muslims, but I mean non-Americans in general, who then begin to look at as the U.S. as, as a big bully on the street. And, and so to overcome that, it's not going to happen with bombs. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to require a return to ruling with justice, with fairness and with objectivity. Once you can do that on a consistent level, you regain the trust of people and it becomes much more effective and much easier to unite a coalition against terrorist groups like ISIS and find a way to resolve issues more amicably and more peacefully. Wait a minute. You're suggesting that we're, we have to live our own ideals before we start <laughs> foisting our ideals on other people? That seems to be a what very a radical concept. position, Kazim Rashid. <laughs> it's a great point. And so let, let's take that as a given. You're absolutely right about that. And, and to whatever extent, and it's a substantial extent, we've departed from the basic things that we think are the ideals, freedoms, and principles of life in the West. We've got to get our credibility back there. You're absolutely right. But I'm also wondering whether a conversation about laws 
is meaningful on the other side of this context. It, it seems to me that some of the th- buttons that are being pushed and the tripwires that are being kicked and the radicalization of people, it's typically a conversation more about things that have been taken away in the past, a desire to restore some kind of past glory. We hear now about the caliphate, you know, the, the notion mm-hmm. that there was this flowering of Islamic civilization that maybe started around 700, lasted about 500 years, and the West started mucking around with it and drawing its own lines. And It seems to me that's one of the really animating conversations that's going on here. And I wonder how we join that conversation. Once again, in that conversation, as you've just suggested, we bring our past sins with us. But how do we join that conversation in a meaningful way? I think there needs to be a couple of things we acknowledge first. One is, and when, I, when I speak before predominantly Muslim audiences, I point out that there's been a failure among Muslim leadership, flat out. There has been a failure among Muslim leadership. You have countries that have allowed despotic regimes to take over. You've had countries that have allowed foreign influence to coerce and to push them around. And we need to acknowledge that. You know, you have religious leaders who have failed. You know, it's easy for me to pick on Pakistan because I've studied it the most. But, you know, you have religious clerics that have pushed through death for apostasy and death for blasphemy laws, these, these barbaric laws that have no semblance of humanity or dignity. So for these folks to talk about the glory of Islam, like Islamic Spain, where there was harmony between Jews, Christians, and Muslims, there was economic prosperity, social prosperity, academic prosperity, to talk about those things and ignore the fact that these countries also had, in Islamic history, they also had universal freedom of conscience. It's hypocrisy. And so that's the first thing I think I try to get my Muslim audiences to acknowledge, that there has been a failure among Muslim leadership. And then the second thing I try to focus on in general is that it's illogical to assume that Western intervention hasn't had an issue, right? You have an Iraq war. Take the country of Iraq, for example. Over the last 30 years, it's seen perpetual warfare. Mm -hmm. Much of it uh, has resulted in the death of innocent civilians. And so when you have three decades of that, if the end result is a generation of people like ISIS, it shouldn't be a shocking factor. It doesn't excuse ISIS. It doesn't justify them. But when you have a history of bombing and bombing and bombing, you're going to create a generation of people who are used to violence. And and that's just a fact that we need to recognize. Now, how you overcome that, again, you know, you, you go back to our ideals of maintaining justice, of maintaining what I think the U.S. Constitution does an excellent job of. As a lawyer in studying the Constitution and comparing it to other world governments, our Constitution is a pretty remarkable document. I hear Americans talk about how great the Constitution is. Too few have read it. it. It really is a remarkable document. And I think if we just hold fast to what our own Constitution tells us to do, we begin to level the playing field and create a better dialogue, a better opportunity to expunge some of the extremist foreign policy views that we take, and we find a way to better position how we respond to extremism overseas as well. You know, everything that you're saying is, is so interesting because on the one hand, it seems as though the only way that we could begin a credible, ongoing dialogue with uh, people whose hearts and minds are being fought over right now would be to begin by saying about the past, well, our bad in some ways, you know, I mean, (laughs) to acknowledging fault and acknowledging fault that maybe even goes back to the drawing of the boundaries of some of these countries, which were not done necessarily by people who live there, but by people from other empires and other places. It also seems so unlikely, you know, that, that at least as to whatever degree this is being done by agencies of the government. I mean, they're just not really good at that. It's almost it goes against the grain of what we do. 
Well, I, I think you made a very important point. You know, a lot of what happened post World War II was almost arbitrary with the boundary drawing and, and with the bifurcations of different countries. No place is that more true between India and Pakistan, which now, six years later, they're still fighting over the border. But at the same time, I think it's important not to dwell so much on the past that we forget to move forward. This concept of a sunk cost, things have already been done that cannot be undone. But the way you remedy them is not by forgetting them, but by recognizing that they are what they are and finding a way to use our common humanity to move forward. As you mentioned, I belong to the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. This is a worldwide Islamic revivalist organization. And what's really unique about our community is that we have been united under a caliph for over a century. And under a caliphate, our community has spread to tens of millions of members in over 200 countries worldwide. Uh, We've built over 600 secular educational institutions, dozens of hospitals, thousands of mosques and community centers, and we've never had a single act of religious violence. Now, I really want to focus on that for a second, because people tend to associate caliphate with violence, unfortunately, when in reality, the only spiritual caliphate that has existed since 1908 has spread to over 200 countries without a single act of religious violence, and on the contrary, contributes hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars to charity on an annual basis. And, and, and when I say charity, I don't just mean for Muslims. I mean for people of all faiths and of, and of no faith. But how many people have heard of this? There is a slant in how we present our news and how we present our information to drive you know, an economic agenda, a capitalistic agenda, a political agenda. But when we're looking at the importance of justice in these affairs, If justice was involved, we would be pointing to the Ahmadiyya Caliphate and say, hold on a second, this is the caliphate we should be looking at because this is the one that's serving humanity, not these ludicrous terrorists over in Syria that just popped up literally nine months ago. Yeah, and certainly, I mean, even looking back to the caliphate about which they are so nostalgic and sentimental, I mean, your point earlier was that one existed in a climate of and probably because of attitudes of pluralism, which is kind of the the opposite of, I mean, I don't know whether it's possible to make that a message that you want that back. You have to live with and maybe even find yourself enjoying pluralism, which seems to be the antithesis of the message that's, that's going in the other direction. It's unsurprising or less surprising uh, that it's tough to convert or even get in a dialogue with somebody living in a country where there is, to use your phrase, oppression of conscience, where you're really not free to wake up in the morning and decide that idea A was never such a good idea. And you'd really like to think about ideas B, C and D and talk about them openly and entertain using them uh, in, in place of idea A. But are you surprised to find that recruitment goes on so successfully, say, in the north of England, among people who are maybe the first or second generation immigrants from one of those countries or in the United States. In other words, in countries where supposedly anyway, there isn't oppression of conscience, recruitment seems to be going on pretty successfully. If anything, the West seems to be almost losing that message message war even there. So what's going on there? I think there's two ways to look at this. You know, one, I think we've incorrectly accepted the narrative that recruitment is going on successfully. In the United States, there's, depending on which estimate you look at, between 3 million and 7 million Americans, American Muslims, sorry. And I believe by the latest count, around 50 or so have allegedly joined ISIS. Mm -hmm. From a statistical standpoint, that number is statistically insignificant. Practically, it's very significant. And this gets to the second part of it, that I think those who are leaving, 
that's where I put the burden on failed uh, Muslim leadership. That's where I put the burden on, on Muslim imams and clerics to, they need to create a more robust environment in their own mosques, in their own communities, to be able to have these dialogues and discussions in a more candid and open manner, so that their first interaction with concepts of jihad aren't on an online forum with some extremist who's trying to bastardize it and, and, and turn it into something that it isn't. I know Muslims from many different sects and organizations, and I have never met a single person who sympathizes with ISIS across the Sunni and Shia spectrum. I have, I personally, with as active as I am in speaking, in, in writing, uh, in, in interviews like this, I've never had uh, a Muslim come to me and say, I want to join ISIS. So it just goes to show you that me being embedded in the Muslim community haven't seen a single person. But the reason why I know that the issue is failed Muslim leadership here is because I can tell you from the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, despite our strong presence at over two 200 nations worldwide, we've never had a single person even think about joining ISIS, let alone commit any act of religious violence. You know, I think there's a model there that can be duplicated across different organizations around the world. And I'll also say this, I commend President Obama on refusing to acknowledge ISIS as an Islamic organization. He's taking that card away from them. And he's showing American Muslim youth that, hey, we are in this together. We, we are one country united against this terrorist organization. And whether you're Muslim or not, we're on the same team against this form of extremism. And, and I think that's a powerful ideological message. We've been talking to uh, Kazim Rashid. Uh, he is a human and religious rights activist and advocate of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in America. He's authored several books, including The Wrong Kind of Muslim and Extremist, a response to Geert Wilders uh, and terrorists everywhere. Thanks so much for taking the time today. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Colin. Thank you for having me. Thank you.